Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children, not just his children, but his grandchildren. This is Jeremy Collins, the host of Theana Money. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the podcast this week. I have an important episode planned because this week we will be looking at an argument people use from scripture to try to prove socialism is good and or biblical and we will see that this argument is to be blunt horrible so this is a great episode to listen to that way when your friend who loves big eva tries to tell you that socialism is loving our neighbor man don't people love using loving your neighbor as an argument to do anything these days and they try to use acts 2 to prove it because we will be looking at how Acts 2 does not support socialism today. But before we jump in, I have a few housekeeping items to take care of. If you like what you are hearing on the podcast, please subscribe to the feed and turn on notifications so you get updated when there is a new episode. Also, please like, rate, and review the podcast to help the algorithm so other people can learn that God's perfect word has much to say about our economics today. That rhymed. That was unintentional. Also, please tell your friends about it. And then share it on social media. Like and share all the social media posts. Comment on them. And especially share the ones that are about new episodes when they drop. And then one last thing before we get to the topic at hand. Go check out the band My Soul Among Lions on Spotify or Tidal or wherever you listen to music. Their song, Satisfy My Soul, which is on Psalm 19, their songs are virtually all, nearly all of them are paraphrases of the Psalms. Their song, Satisfy My Soul, is the intro and outro to this podcast, and they are kind enough to allow me to use it. So go check out some of their music and tell your friends about My Soul Among Lions. Now, back to the topic at hand. You may be thinking, Jeremy, didn't we have an episode refuting a supposedly biblical argument for socialism just like a month or two ago? And the answer to that question is yes. That was episode 7, titled, Caesar, Care for the Poor, and Socialism. If you have not listened to it, you should go back and listen to that one after you finish this episode. Both episodes respond to different ways people try to use scripture to support socialism and explain how the arguments are invalid. That episode refuted the argument that we all have to care for the poor, including Caesar, and since his income comes from taxes, he cares for the poor by giving tax revenue to them. Thus, welfare and socialism are biblical, or so the argument goes. So that episode covered responding to that if you want to check it out go listen to that as soon as you're done with this episode and then this episode will cover acts 2 and how some people use this passage to 
supposedly give a biblical example of socialism. However, this will not be the last episode where I respond to and refute arguments that supposedly prove that the Bible specifically and Christianity in general support socialism. There are a lot of these false claims out there, so I have a lot of content for future episodes on this topic. But enough about past and future episodes. You're listening to this episode right now, so this is the one you're interested in at the moment, and let's get to it. So if you have heard any argument for how scripture supposedly supports socialism, chances are you have likely heard that Acts 2 does. In my experience, and experience is not our final authority because we don't hold to standpoint epistemology here or standpoint theory, but regardless, in my experience, this is one of the most prevalent arguments for socialism from the Bible. The argument is that the early church practiced socialism from the earliest days and years of his existence, right from the beginning of the book of Acts, even before Paul's conversion. If the church did this, so early in its existence, and the Bible describes how it did so without saying it was wrong or otherwise sinful, then socialism must be biblical and thus it is a good thing that we should be working towards. So let's dive into the text and see exactly what in the passage they use to support their claim and how this section of scripture not only does not support their argument, but actually supports private ownership. Of property. So the context of this passage is that Peter just gave his sermon at Pentecost and 3,000 people were converted to Christ. 3,000 people repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ and his atoning death and resurrection. So let's read starting in verse 41 to catch the end of that part of the chapter and then we will go all the way to the end of the chapter at verse 47. So, starting in verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were dividing them up with all, as anyone might have need. And daily devoting themselves with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. That was the reading of God's word from the Legacy Standard Bible. So verse 44 is the key here, although verse 45 is important as well to the socialist argument from this passage. Verse 44 says that the believers in Jerusalem had all things in common. They were practicing socialism. They had all things in common. They shared everything. Then we continue to the next verse, and it says that they were selling their possessions and dividing them up according to everyone's need. From each man according to his ability, to each man according to his need. And it's right there in scripture. Socialism is biblical. 
not so fast, Carl Mick socialism face. For starters, I could cross-reference this passage with many others to help this case. But let's not do that. Let's stay in these verses right here and in other passages directly related to them. This passage says that these believers had all things in common. Does this mean that no one considered anything his own possession and everyone considered all things owned by the collective? The socialist twisting this passage would probably say so, but that is not the case. As we look at the next few chapters of Acts, especially in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, we see that this is not the case. In chapter 5, verse 4, Peter says to Ananias, referring to the land that Ananias sold and lied about, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your authority? So from that we see that this idea that everyone in the Jerusalem church considered their property to, property to be collectively owned is untrue. An apostle recognizes private property even while this is all going on. But we don't have to jump three chapters ahead to make this argument, although I think that it is perfectly fine to do so because the context of the early weeks and months of the church is still the same. But we don't have to do that. We can make this argument right here in this passage. Look at verse 45. It reads that they began selling their property and possession. These people had property and possessions. They were selling them to give to those who were in need. But they can't sell something that they do not own. Hence, they owned those things. They possessed them. Hence, the term possession. Man, if you listen to the first full-length episode on scripture arguments for private property, you're probably thinking this is like almost word for word the same from that. And maybe it is. I'm kind of making the same argument here. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and check it out. It was the first full-length episode or the second episode counting episode zero as the introduction. So these people had things that they were willing to sell in order to meet the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not socialism. This is free market capitalism with people who are generous, as Christians should be. Also note that they sold them. These people at least to some degree recognized the validity of free trade, of buying and selling. Otherwise, they would not have engaged in such practices in order to acquire money to give to the poor. At worst... They thought of free trade as a necessary evil. At best, they thought of it as a good thing. Actually, that's probably just kind of the neutral answer, and there's something on the other side of at best. I don't know. But the text does not say either way in these verses, these verses specifically here. I think if we look at all throughout Scripture and take a biblical argument, by the way, biblical not meaning the correct view, but rather looking at all the Scripture together. That's where the term biblical theology comes from. I think we can make, so I guess more a systematic argument, we can make a pretty good systematic argument that free trade is a good thing. That's one thing this podcast will hopefully talk a lot about. But continuing on, so Acts 45 actually teaches us the validity of private property, ownership of one's possessions, and buying and selling in the marketplace. However, these verses do teach us about generosity. 
that is one thing that, though most of their argument is wrong, that the socialist argument here does get right. These verses teach about generosity. We should use these Christians as examples about caring for widows and orphans, about providing for the poor, especially the poor who are of the household of faith. We should take care of them with our excess, with our surplus. We should even wisely and in such a way that it does not jeopardize our own family, do without to care for them if need be. This passage is not teaching us that we are to own everything in common and no one should think of what they have as their possessions alone, but rather the shared possessions of everyone. Instead, we should look at this passage and come away seeing the beauty of our private possessions in that we can use them to help take care of the poor, not just to take care of ourselves and our family, but even to take care of other people, starting with fellow Christians. This is where the passage really reminds me of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. We see there that Paul says, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. The one who used to be a thief, now as a believer, should work hard to earn an income and be able to pay back those he stole from and help those in need. This passage teaches us that we should not be selfish with our possessions. We should be generous. But, contrary to what some Christians think, that doesn't mean we should give away money until we are just below the poverty line and try our best to stay there, no matter how cool and radical these people may tell you that idea is. Also, vital to our understanding of this issue is that care for the poor should be done by the family and church spheres of sovereignty, not the state sphere of sovereignty. The state, the civil magistrate, is the bearer of the sword on evildoers. It is the minister of wrath, whereas the church is the minister of mercy. I know I come to this sphere of sovereignty topic a lot, but that is because it is vital to so much of our economics and politics as Christians. So unless I go through some unexpected major shift in theology of authority, then this will be a recurring theme on the podcast. Also note that it was not Rome or the Sadducees taking care of these poor in this passage. The Christians were giving to them directly or giving the money and goods to the apostles. You know, it says they laid them at the apostles' feet. And likely not just the apostles, but also deacons and non-apostolic church elders as well. They were giving the money to them to distribute the money to the poor and those in need. So this refutes any view of socialism where the state distributes the money. We see here the first two spheres of authority, not the third distributing the money. And by the way, the, there are a bunch of different views of socialism. That's why every time you refute one, someone says, well, that's not the one I hold to. It's really annoying. But... A lot of them do involve the state distributing the money. And so this basically just destroys their arguments. And comments that I made earlier in this episode and in other episodes responds to some other views of socialism 
where, and you know, people use this text to argue for them, where this is all done voluntarily without state intervention. You know, so they try to say they get around that point I just made about the spheres of sovereignty because they say it should all be done voluntarily. The state shouldn't be involved. This is some other views of socialism. This idea is more of like a tight-knit community that shares everything. Kind of think of like your old hippie communes from back in the 70s. That's more the idea here, although there's all kinds of different forms of it. So that's not saying they were all these people who hold this idea are 1970s hippies. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But either way, both of these views of socialism, whether by state intervention or by direct giving with no state intervention, both of them forget about the depravity and wickedness of mankind. They have to view man as inherently good rather than inherently evil so that he does not abuse the system, which of course happens when socialism is put into practice. Another point to note here is that many of these Christians may have been so willing to sell their land and give it away is because they knew the destruction of Jerusalem that was coming. Jesus predicted it already in his Olivet Discourse. Now I'm sure they didn't know exactly what was coming, but they knew something cataclysmic that would cause them to have to flee Jerusalem was coming. If God, because Jesus is God, if God tells me that in just a few decades I will be fleeing my land for my life with nothing but the shirt on my back and whatever is in my hands when I see the destruction coming, not even willing to run back into the house to grab stuff for the urgency that is here, if I hear that from God himself saying it, I will be a lot more willing to sell my property and give part of the proceeds to take care of the poor. I would be giving what I cannot keep long term to help those who would otherwise be without. So to not interpret this passage and this selling of property without considering AD 70 is to fail to take the entire context into account in our interpretation. And then we're getting close to wrapping up here, but I want to read a most of a paragraph from John Calvin in his commentary on this passage. Because John Calvin actually responds to these ideas Socialism isn't new. The Anabaptists in John Calvin's day and many Anabaptists today when there are still Anabaptists around argue for a more socialistic view of economics. So Calvin says, if you have Calvin commentaries, I'm using the 1995 Baker edition. It's on page 130. But this place hath need of a sound exposition because of fantastical or fanatical spirits which do feign a commonality or participation together of goods, whereby all policy or civil government is taken away. As in this age the Anabaptists have raged, because they thought there was no church unless all men's goods were put and gathered together, as it were, in one heap, that they might all one with another take thereof. Wherefore, we must in this point beware of two extremes. For many under color of policy, do keep close and conceal whatever they have. They defraud the poor, and they think that they are twice righteous, so they take away no other men's goods. Other, some, are carried into the contrary error, because they would have all things confused. But what doth Luke? Surely he noteth another order, when he saith that there was choice made in the distribution. 
If any man shall object that no man had anything which was his own, seeing all things were common, we may easily answer. For this community or participation together must be restrained unto the circumstance which ensueth immediately, to wit, that the poor might be relieved as every man had need. We know the old proverb, all things are common amongst friends. When as the scholars of Pythagoras said thus, they did not deny but that every man might govern his own house privately. Neither did they intend to make their own wives common. So this having of things common, whereof Luke speaketh, and which he commendeth, doth not take away household government, which thing shall better appear by the fourth chapter, whereas he nameth two alone, which sold their possessions of so many thousands. Whence we gather that which I said even now, that they brought forth and made common their goods in no other respect, save only that they might relieve the present necessity. Now, one last thing on this passage, as a good Calvinist, isn't that funny to say right after reading John Calvin, although he would have hated the term, so let's use this term instead. As a good monergist, I can't go over this passage without making a quick mention of verse 47. God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. These people weren't adding themselves to the number of Christians as they used their free will to believe the gospel without any fearance from God besides provenient grace. God added to the number of believers daily. Not man, God. God is sovereign over salvation. Regeneration precedes faith. So in summary, this passage does not teach some sort of biblical view of socialism. It just teaches generosity. To the contrary, it teaches that what these people were selling to give the profit to the poor was their own property. So it actually reinforces the ideas of private ownership and free trade. And that is not even taking the coming of AD 70 into consideration. This passage does teach us about generosity. It teaches us much about generosity. And dozens of other passages of scripture also teach us a lot about generosity. So we should be careful not to go to the other extreme and to be the selfish pig straw man that many people claim capitalism is. And unfortunately, it often turns into with crony capitalism, which is an aberration from true free market enterprise because crony capitalism is what you get when you mix a bunch of socialism into capitalism. So that is all for this week's episode of Theonomony. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Satisfies me Your law is sweet Oh you